Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Grace Hamilton. Grace is an incoming freshman at Columbia University. She was the 2022-23 Journalism Education Association Student Journalist of the Year after completing her studies at the American School of London, a school that empowers students to thrive as lifelong learners and courageous global citizens by fostering intellect, creativity, inclusivity, and character. Hi, Grace. Hi, Mark. So fill in some blanks for me first. Where did you grow up? Just a little bit about your family as well and how you ended up at ASL. So I grew up in San Francisco, California. And then when I was about two years old, we moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where I lived for three years. And then we moved back to San Francisco, which is where I attended kindergarten and then the subsequent years. And I moved to London when I was 12 years old. So I was an incoming seventh grader. And my mom at that time traveled to Europe a lot. She manages a company. So we decided it was a lot more practical for the family to be there. And that was meant to be a year, which has now turned into six. (laughs) Wow. All right. So what's your journalism origin story? I grew up as a writer. I can't remember a day when I didn't write. That's what I did when I came home from school. I was just writing on my mom's laptop, mainly short stories. So all, all fictional But I was also definitely an observer. So that was a big part of who I was. And then when I was a freshman at ASL, that's the first time that we can sort of elect to be in different classes that aren't the typical ones you would take. And I had signed up for design and engineering. And yeah, so the first couple of days of that class, I decided this is not what I want to do. And I'd heard of journalism, I'd heard of The Standard, which is our school's publication. And I just thought, why not? I love writing never tried journalism before. I'm a freshman. There's no harm. So I joined a couple classes in and I just fell in love with it. I never looked back. I applied to be an editor that spring and then was on staff all four years of high school. And progressing uh, all the way up through the ranks to editor-in-chief. Now, within all the different things that I read about you, a lot of very, I don't even know what the right word is, but just impressive comments within your website, where you're essentially putting forth your portfolio, the substance of the publication, giving voice to the community to spark debate on meaningful issues is undeniably powerful. And as you said, it was something that led you from doing it for like one day to doing it for for four years. Uh, What was the turning point for you in pursuing it as passionately as you did? I think it was in 2020, um, which was my sophomore year. So I was the culture editor online at this point. Um, And it was October. So it was the election time. um, And we were covering it as a staff. And there was a point when my editor-in-chief called me. It was a Saturday. um, And then I picked up and she said, hey, Grace, can you come in for layout for the special edition? So I did. um, And I brought my camera and everything with me. And it was a couple of the juniors, some senior editors, a lot of the managing team was there. And we just worked for hours. We were about to send a press and I was there for probably four or five hours just finalizing the story. I remember sitting at a laptop with another editor, looking over our editorial. And that was the first moment that I thought, I love this. And not only were the stories we were covering super powerful, 
and very poignant for our school community because even as a school in London, um, the election was this big, big event. Everyone was talking about it. We have American in our name. A lot of our students are American. So it was this big special edition. We knew the whole school would be reading and we really wanted it to be good. We wanted it to be impartial. And I feel like we really did justice to it. So sitting in that room with these older editors who I admired and had spent very little time with at this point was amazing. And then just seeing the words on the paper, on the InDesign file, ready to send to press, that was definitely the turning point for me. What did you write? I wrote a piece about the Settle for Biden campaign with a co-editor. Yeah, and that what, piece was a ton of fun. Okay, what, what went into that? Gosh, a lot. That was my first story where it was really, really important to consider both sides, as was every piece for this special edition. But my co-editor and I thought a lot about who we were interviewing. Obviously, they had American identities. We actually had one person that was British, which was interesting. And it was essentially about what the Settle for Biden campaign meant, um, objectively, and then different opinions on it. So we talked to people that were pro-Settle for Biden, sort of deciding on it, and then were very avidly against it. So that was my first piece where objectivity was definitely called into question and something that I was looking out for. Going back one step here, was anyone in your family or in your heritage like a storyteller, a writer, something that would have like kind of passed that gene on to you? I don't think so, actually. I think my my family and my mom in particular, she's always told me stories. I definitely remember like sitting with her on the hammock when I was younger. She would tell me and my little sister stories, but no one that has been really a writer um, as a as a profession. It's all been, you know, we tell stories like around the dinner table. I vividly remember that as a kid, but nothing that was written. So you progressed all the way to editor-in-chief, and you managed a staff of 63 students. As editor-in-chief, I serve my staff and ensure that we precedes I. How did your managerial style develop and evolve? Oh, so much. I mean, I went into this role knowing that it would be a big one and knowing that I would evolve as the year progressed, but I, I couldn't have imagined nearly how much. And I think one of the biggest things I realized throughout the year was that I just couldn't do everything because you're managing both the print and online side of the publication. And there's just so many hours that go into the role. I realized that I have a team for a reason. So delegation was definitely something that I ended up leaning on a lot more and then trusting my lead editors and section editors. We, as part of the standard, have this triangle set up. So we have lead editors on top, if you will, of the triangle. And then we have online and print section editors. And then as editor-in-chief, I had two deputy editors, one for print and one for online. So my role was really just to facilitate and have everyone learn in their role as much as they could. And then I was there for them to lean on, but really emphasizing the importance of the team. How often does the paper come out? So online, we publish daily one, two, sometimes three stories per day. And then our print publications come out once every two months. Okay. So the, the online aspect of this, like you're thinking about this, like every day intense. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. All day long, every day. Wow. Okay. And going to school and it's high yes. school. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, all right. lots so, so I'm going through your website and the thing that jumped out to me the most was that you are a paragon of organization. And I say that as a high compliment. Color-coded spreadsheets, guidelines, how-tos, editing expectations, TikTok journalism guidelines, things you created, things you revised, things you worked on with groups. 
what were the lessons that you learned about organization and do you have any advice for future organizers? There's so much for organization. I think as a leader, that's one of the most important things you'll learn to develop. I think the biggest thing I would say is making sure that everyone knows how the publication is organized, not just myself, because if just I knew how I wanted the spreadsheet to run or for the online story editing process to look like, that wouldn't be much use for the publication at large. So a big focus of mine was setting expectations very early on for my team and then enforcing them and saying, this is how we do things on the standard. This is how lead editors should approach this process. This is how section editors should really doing that early on. And then I know everyone will say this, but time management is huge, especially taking on such a big role like editor-in-chief or deputy editor-in-chief, even in just a section editor. There's so much time that goes into that. And if you're able to really block out time that you're spending on certain articles or editing or writing and then prioritizing, that was a huge thing for me, just making sure that I knew what I was doing and when I was doing it. And then, you know, knowing the organization and generally how it operates, that I think is the first step for any leader organizing is just to cater specific tools for their organization in particular. I think that if anyone goes to your website, uh, and we'll have a link in the show notes and looks through, they essentially have a template for themselves if they become an editor-in-chief, essentially regardless of, of where you go to school. I want to segue to writing and your signature piece in the four years that you were there. You did a 5,000-word essay about sexual harassment that you wrote two years ago as culture editor. You mentioned you had that position. It included 15 as told-tos, a poll, art, creative photography, a word cloud, a flowchart for people on how to get help. It is incredibly comprehensive in just about every way that it can be. How did the idea to do this originate? So I was just reading The Guardian. As every journalist does, you look at the news. And there was this story that said that 97% of women in the UK in public areas had been sexually harassed. And at the time, this wasn't, this was sort of the solo article that had come out on this. But in London, and specifically at my school, it was a huge problem. Like you just hear stories in the hallways, you hear stories in the wider London community. And I was like, this is something I have to write about. So I ended up finding my features editor the next day in Spanish class and saying, this is what I want to write. Can I write it? And she said, yes. And then the next day I started, I brainstormed the different people I was going to interview. I brainstormed questions. So that's, that's how it originated was just reading an article and then feeling like it really resonated with me. And 5,000 words, were you expecting that at the time? No, not at all. I thought it would be a much smaller story than it ended up being. But I think after the first few interviews, that was when I said this can be something big um, because people really opened up and I thought it would be twice as powerful if I included all the multimedia I ended up using and talking to, you know, 15 girls as opposed to the five that I had planned to. So it ended up turning into this much bigger thing that I had originally anticipated. One of the themes of the podcast is we've often asked the question, how do you get people to, to be comfortable in talking to you? And I'm curious how that applied here. Yeah, that's a tough question. And I think that's something that every journalist learns as they go. But in interviews, I always treat it as a conversation. I never want my interviewee to feel as if I'm just asking questions and they're meant to give curated, thought out answers. So I think, you know, making them feel comfortable is a big thing, like sitting down, explaining exactly why you're writing the story, being very friendly and open. That's a big part of it. 
I also like to use a reporter's notebook as opposed to having my laptop out and, you know, typing. I feel like that creates a barrier between you and your interviewee. And then I think just warming up with, I don't want to say easier questions to answer, but, you know, questions that are a little bit less personal, or maybe they're more willing to talk about originally, and then sort of going more into depth, asking the questions that will get personal stories. Yeah, so just starting with the easier things and then building up to those harder questions and ultimately just treating it like a conversation. Did a lot of the people that you talked to know you beforehand or at least know of you and what your role was? I would say so. We go to a relatively small school, but a lot of the people I interviewed did not know me well. So I had a few people that I I had talked to quite a bit. And then there were the majority, I would say, didn't know me well at all. So this was just, they knew I was writing this article. They'd said yes to the interview. And then in the interview ended up telling me a lot. So how long did the piece take to do? I'd say a month and a half total. And it was all I did every day. Wow. Okay. How yeah, did you, did, did you besides going to class? Yeah. Besides going to class, <laughs> class, and then my sexual harassment piece. That was my schedule. Gotcha. What was the reaction to it on campus? It was pretty big. It was definitely a heavy story and people acknowledged that and it was used in classes. So it was a, an article that a lot of English classes read, social studies classes, and then it prompted a lot of discussion. Like there was this big conversation about sexual harassment in my school that I don't think anyone had ever seen before. And it was this very prevalent problem that I think everyone to a certain extent knew existed and knew impacted women in particular, but having a story that actually had names attached to stories and very personal anecdotes, that was something that definitely resonated. So it was, it was pretty big. And I think the most powerful thing about journalism and telling difficult stories like that is that people listen and feel the issue on a much deeper level than they would otherwise and actually talk about it with friends, classmates, teachers, whoever it may be. And with that, what was the follow-up to the story like? The follow-up to the story, it was it was actually pretty powerful because administration had conversations with me about what they could do differently. That was a big goal of mine with the story, um, was to shed light on these different experiences, especially within the school that had happened and have administration and the safeguarding team that we have look into why the environment of the school had become this place where those things could happen and how to better support um, the people who'd experienced that. So I was part of a lot of conversations about that. I have a very good relationship now with the safeguarding lead who was helping spearhead that project. And I think they're, they're trying, at least when I left the school, to start that kind of sexual education training earlier on. So in lower school, you know, talking to talking to these people about, you know, what are boundaries? What does consent look like? All of those different things very early so that it's not a problem they then have to tackle with high school kids. This is very similar, I suppose, to someone who writes for Politico, who writes a piece, and then after the fact, Congress acts upon it. Essentially, in your situation, you wrote something, they came even, and the administration met up and it sounds like a lot happened. So that's, that's great. I, that's, that's real world, that's real world training, I think, as much as you can get, certainly. Was there a dramatic moment of hitting publish on it? Oh, for sure. My advisor, Louis Avery, will tell you I was a nervous wreck. I was sitting with 
we were publishing it at a transition period. So I was between culture online and then lead culture for my positions. And I was with the incoming editor-in-chief and incoming deputy editor-in-chief for online. And we were just sitting at the table and I was like, wait, wait, no, we're not going to press post yet. I need to read it through again. And keep in mind, it's a 5,000 word story. You can only read it through so many times before it's like, Grace, just hit publish. But when I did, it was the best feeling. There was definitely a sense of, oh, I could have made this better. I could have done this differently. But I think you'll have that with every story. And for something that you worked on that means so much to you, I think that that's just a natural part of it. Reminds me of the scene in the movie where the reporters are pushing publish on the story about Harvey Weinstein. Certainly, yeah. it sounds like you had your own, essentially, experience, essentially your own experience of that. Um, I want to ask about another piece. In May, you wrote about Syrian refugees in Jordan. You visited a refugee camp as part of a project. It's a hopeful story. One of the girls was quoted by you as saying, I no longer see a future as a housewife. These are people that were destitute that now are in much better situations than they were. Ten forms of multimedia in the story. Another very thorough piece. What was the experience of doing that story like? It was one of my favorite stories. I've been passionate about Syrian refugees in particular and girls' education and that crossroads for a long, long time. And then actually getting to visit the camps and talk to the girls and interview them that was amazing. That was an experience unlike any other. But that said, it was really difficult to put together because I felt like I had to do justice to these stories that they were sharing with me. And this was my chance to bring these stories back to my London community and, you know, bring awareness to this massive, massive issue. Multimedia was a really powerful way, both in sexual harassment and then with this refugee story, to bring the story to life in a way that wasn't possible with words. So, you know, having the maps, having the, in her words, again, for both of those pieces, I feel like that, that added element was really, really powerful and conveying as much of a full rounded story as possible. How did that piece impact you personally? Oh, that's a tough question. And in so many ways, I think it was one thing to be sitting with these different girls who were my age and just as talented, just as smart, just as funny as me and all of my peers, and they were just born into completely different circumstances. So I just think talent is equally distributed and opportunity is not. And that piece was my first, like, this is a real thing. So I think sitting down with the girls and interviewing them, that was incredible. And that just made me realize that privilege is a really important thing and you need to use it well. So that's definitely a big part of it. And then sitting down and taking the interviews that I'd had and then putting a piece together, that was pretty difficult because I felt like there was so much in each of these interviews. They had so much to say um, and creating this comprehensive, relatively short story from those very long interviews was was difficult, but really, really amazing to see the final product, both in print and then eventually online. I was going to say that as myself, as an empathetic person, that it would be hard to do the stories that you've done, the sexual harassment story and a story about Syrian refugees without it having having it, you know, impact you pretty significantly. And I think there's a lot of pressure to do something like that, right? I'm sure self-imposed uh, kind of pressure. How do you, uh, we've, another theme of the podcast has been the question, how do you manage your mental health to make sure that, that you're good with that? That's a great question. And that's such an important one. 
as a journalist, because I think both in telling the story, like telling difficult stories, and then also just managing a team, I think both of those things come with a lot of potential burnout, mental health challenges. So I think personally, balance was a big thing, just setting boundaries for myself, again, time management, figuring out what I was doing when there were times when both my deputy editor in chief and I would say, hey, I really can't do this tonight. I have X going on and vice versa. That was a really important thing to have, just to say, this is my boundary. I need to respect that I have balance in my life. Journalism is not everything. I also need to get into college and not fail my classes. So there's just a lot that that goes into really wanting to be a journalist and do justice to these amazing stories. But at the same time, recognizing that you have other needs and other people in your life that you need to pay attention to. Um, and you do you do have another aspect too. You sail, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Yep. Does that help? Oh, for sure. For sure. There are so many things that I do, like even just creatively writing. That was a big one for me. Um, when I wasn't working on journalism or doing class-related stuff, I was more often than not writing or reading. I like to go out for walks or on runs. So getting outside was a big part of it. But just finding those other things in your life that aren't related whatsoever, that just help you, you know, clear your mind and just get out of that headspace. What What's an example of a lighter story that you either did or oversaw in your four years? And when I say lighter, I'm thinking the stories that you've written are ones, as I said, that you could see in Politico or any number of really prominent places. What's an example of something that was more, I guess, high schoolish, fun, kind of something that you enjoyed doing? So one that I wrote for April Fool's Day actually was called Top Five Ways to Procrastinate. I had this top five <laughs> column that I started my freshman year during COVID. It was actually started by the previous culture editor and I continued it. And I loved doing this column. It was an every Friday thing. People loved reading it. It was funny. I loved writing it. And then I decided like, I want to do something that's a complete joke and just funny for people to read. So I did this procrastination story. We published it on April Fool's Day. It was just a good way to lighten the standard. I think sometimes we take ourselves too seriously. And that's, it's a really important thing to remember. Like we are students too. We can write about things that seem trivial and silly and stupid. That's actually something that we should embrace. And then the other one actually wasn't one that I wrote, but it was a video that two of my co-editors created called Crocumentary. And it was about the rise of Crocs at the American School in London. And it was hilarious. It was shared on social media a million times. People loved it. People were like, the standard really reported on this. And it was done journalistically. It bordered on satire, but it was still a, like a big hit in our community and a story that people still talk about now. It was a legit piece. I saw it. Oh, yeah, um, it definitely was. <laughs> um, going back to the, the challenges of the job, what was the hardest part uh, about being an editor-in-chief? It's such a 24-7 job. I was editor-in-chief all the time. Um, I was a student part of the time, but I was editor-in-chief all the time because people are texting you, asking questions. You're always available. You're always thinking about the stories you're going to post. You're always editing. You're always writing. There's just so much that goes into the job, both mentally and physically. And then I would say that it can also get lonely to be managing such a large team um, because you feel like you're always there for everyone else. And then it can be tough when you're having a hard time or you're stressed. And that's when I really leaned on my advisor, Miss Avery. She was amazing and just making me feel like I had someone to talk to. She was always there to support me. But I would say it definitely can get lonely when you when you're managing this big team and you feel like 
everything you you do needs to have a purpose and it's it's important work and you want to do it well but you also need to make sure that you have these boundaries so she was amazing in, in helping me with that intense lesson to get as a young person today certainly journalism as a means of activism is my through line and the american school in london is very into the idea of stu our students we want them to be active and activists how has being a journalist shaped how you view the world in so many ways I would almost say in every way. I ask so many more questions than I did before. Like everything that I see now, even if it seems small and trivial and I don't end up writing a story about it, it's still something I ask questions about. So that's a big part of how it's viewed, how it's shaped how I view the world. And then I think I view even small things as stories. There were things I wrote about in high school that I had never even considered looking at or researching beforehand. So that, that's been amazing, just taking these small things, these people I never would have talked to before, and then creating this story that people actually want to read. What's an example of that? Gosh, I think Crockumentary is a good one. Like Crocs, no one would consider writing or creating a video about Crocs. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think that's my example. It's just something so trivial, but people end up loving it. And it's like people they see every day are then featured in this video about like shoe wear. <laughs> uh, what is what is the process of writing like for you? Like, is it an enjoyable process? Is it stressful? How, how is it like? It's really enjoyable. I love writing. I don't think there's anything I love more. It can be stressful in journalism when you're taking these different interviews and you're trying to weave this piece together and you want to make sure that you're tying all of these different voices together in this really powerful way. But I loved, you know, seeing my like word vomit or brain dump from that first draft become something that I felt like was really cogent and was telling the story in the way I had envisioned, envisioned when I was in the interview. I feel like as a journalist, sometimes when you're in the interview, you can see the quotes already. Like if someone says something, I'm just like, oh, that's going to be my pull quote, or this is <laughs> definitely something I'm going to put in the piece. So seeing that is one of my favorite feelings ever. It's just like a rush, rush of adrenaline, adrenaline when you press that post button and you see your story come to life. That is true for, I think, any type of journalist. I am nodding my head. People can't see it, but I am nodding my head as you, as you bring that up. All right. So you're a young woman headed to Columbia, headed to what seems like a very promising future in the industry. We have interviewed probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 80 female journalists over the course of the last two and a half years. And it seems like there are a lot of promising opportunities for women in the field these days. What is your level of optimism about the future and its place for you? I think the world has never been in more need of good journalists. I'm especially good female journalists. And I think journalism as a whole, as a profession, its perception has been warped and it's so often villainized. I actually wrote a piece about it for print this past year, villainizing journalists. But I think media outlets can often be used as corrupt tools used by political elites to sort of hijack the social conversation in their direction. That said, I am optimistic about the future of journalism and particularly my role on it. I think stories will always have an impact, um, even if it's negative. And having journalists tell them objectively to hold institutions and people accountable is absolutely critical. And it'll be one of our most powerful weapons in the coming years when 
climate change and political polarization, entrenched injustice, and all these other things we're facing sort of come to the crossroads. I think journalism will be the thing that pushes pushes action in the direction it needs to go. And what kind of journalist do you aspire to be? <laughs> I aspire to be a journalist that tells stories others are unwilling or hesitant to tell and ultimately amplifying underrepresented voices. I think, especially as a woman, that is one of my utmost goals is telling difficult stories and, and embracing controversy. Was one of the appeals of, of Columbia, New York City and the, the many, many stories that seem to be available to tell? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I am so excited to report in New York City. I feel like there are so many people, so many stories that, that are left to uncover there. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you and ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? I think the Student Press Law Center definitely deserves a salute for their good work in helping student journalists navigate legal troubles that often arise. And then I think I'd be remiss if I didn't salute the standard staff and everyone over the past four years that helped me become the journalist I am now. They truly shaped who I am and my high school experience, never mind my love for journalism and writing and telling powerful stories. So they're, they're all amazing. I love them so much and I'll miss them next year. Grace Hamilton, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck at Columbia and beyond. Thank you, Mark. Louisa Avery is the journalism advisor at the American School in London, teacher there. Can you just tell us about the journalism program at the school? I have four different journalism classes that all work together on one newspaper staff where they produce both um, a print publication that comes out uh, four times a year and an online newspaper where they publish new content each school day throughout the year. So all four classes, like I said, collaborate. So they do a lot of communication outside of class since they're not together. And then the four classes together all make up the newspaper staff. So students, as soon as they join the journalism class, they are considered on the staff. And they dive right into some very intense topics as uh, Grace, we just heard from her, did in her four years there. How did she develop as a journalist to the point where she was named uh, National Student Journalist of the Year? Well, she started off, you know, as a ninth grader, she was kind of quiet and shy. And but by 10th grade, she became an editor as a sophomore. And she was actually named a culture editor, which was not her first choice, um, but we thought that she would be great in that position. And she really did um, really develop that section. Now it's one of our most popular sections. And she, you know, came to me with the story idea. And I told her, you know, it sounds like an amazing story, but, you know, take your time. Don't rush it. It, it you know, maybe it'll take six months is what I thought it would take. I'm not sure if she didn't sleep or what, but she was ready within two months with the, the story to go forward. And, you know, throughout the process, there was, you know, some bumps and I was there to help and support her through it. But, you know, I, because it is a student run program, I don't read the stories until they're, they've gone all the way through the editing process. And so I wasn't expecting to see this story for, you know, six months. And within two months, I was told it's ready for you. And I read it. I'm skeptical. You know, she's she's a sophomore. It's a huge story. She, in my opinion, you know, finished it way faster than I thought that she would. I was expecting it to, you know, need a lot of, you know, I was expecting it to not to be in as good of a quality it was at that stage. And I read it in one sitting and it was about 
3,000 words, I think. <laughs> and I didn't move. It was, I got goosebumps. I felt every emotion you can feel reading a story. I felt angry. I, I you know, I, I felt, I mean, amazed by the fact that one of my students had pulled this off. And I mean, the story ended up winning, you know, and it placed third place for story of the year that year through the National Scholastic Press Association, which was amazing, especially because, again, it was a sophomore. And I was thinking, if here she is as a sophomore, what is she going to do later in life? And she just continued, you know, to develop and became a leader right in front of my eyes. What kind of future do you see for her? You know, I think that she, she you know, I, she says she wants to continue in journalism, and I think that she would be an amazing journalist. But the fact that she cares so much about the world, everything that is happening, you know, maybe journalism will be her future, which, you know, is what she thinks she's going to pursue. But if she ended up becoming a member of the United Nations, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, she, she really, she, she has just amazing qualities of being able to relate to people, to talk to them. If she became an ambassador one day, that wouldn't surprise me either. The way that she gets sources to open up to her by making them feel at ease. And she does the same thing with a new, you know, reporter. She's, she was a senior in the ninth grade reporters would, you know, be excited when she would leave a comment on their story that was like, good job. And other people would hear, overhear them in the hallways getting excited about it. So she just makes everyone that she comes in contact with feel special. And I think that, you know, as, as a journalist, it's just an amazing quality that she has because it really makes people want to open up to her. And she just cares so much. She cares about, you know, the things that are going on in the world. And she just wants to do what she can do. And if all she can do is bring awareness, then she will do that the best way that she can. We certainly got that feeling from her and talking to her for the, the 30 minutes that we did. We should acknowledge, too, the Journalism Education Association, of which you're a member. Can you explain what the Journalism Education Association does and just, like, how the organization helps promote student journalists. Yeah, it's an amazing organization that it's a professional organization geared toward journalism teachers. However, students in college and also professional journalists also are eligible for membership um, with student memberships and professional memberships. It has so many benefits um, for educators, including an entire curriculum that is unmatched. It has different contest opportunities, such as the Journalist of the Year competition, but it has many others. Um, and it really is the best form of professional development that journalism educators could be involved in. And honestly, the membership fee is, is not anywhere near as high as it should be for what it provides. And if I was going to recommend any, any organization for a journalism educator, to be part of, it would no doubt be Journalism Education Association. Um, I've been a member of them my entire teaching career and would not be half the teacher I am now without. Louise Avery, the Journalism Advisor at the American School in London. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.